We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Away we go, episode 19 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Wednesday, March 17th, 2021. It is a second consecutive day on which we have piping hot, late night, Washington football team free agency news to get into. This should be like a new show, late night with Ron Rivera. What is in store for us in prime time? Under the lights when the sun goes down, Washington lights up the night and another whopper going down. Tuesday night into Wednesday, William Jackson III, WJ3. Can we call him WJ3? Should we call him WJ3? Anyway, we can figure that out later, but perhaps the best corner in the 2021 free agent market now off the market as he has agreed on a deal with Washington. Ryan Fitzpatrick, Monday night, William Jackson III on Tuesday night. 
He's headed to Washington. Big news. I think it's good news. Uh, there are some things to be mindful of with Jackson, but there is a lot to like with William Jackson the third. And you think about what he and Kendall Fuller could be, maybe, hopefully, the best cornerback tandem that Washington has had in a while. And I know, look, Fuller and Ronald Darby were very good together in 2020. But Darby, of course, off to Denver. And with Jackson, there's much more of a recent body of work than what you have with Darby. Darby was great in 2020, but he hadn't been great in a while. He had not stayed healthy in a while. And so you have to keep that in mind when you're paying big money to somebody. Jackson has more of a track record. Jackson's getting paid, uh, but Jackson has a chance here to continue some great work and to be what Washington, of course, was in dire need of. And that is a very strong starting caliber cornerback. You got that and William Jackson the third. Now, I mentioned Fitzpatrick. We do have a lot more for you today uh, on Ryan Fitzpatrick. We now know some of the Ryan Fitzpatrick contract details. What do they tell us? What does Washington signing all Fitzmagic truly mean about Washington taking a quarterback in the 2021 draft or even still trading for Sam Darnold? Yeah, that became a thing, or I guess I should say continued to be a thing on Tuesday. We'll get into that on the podcast today, and I will explore the phenomenon that has been Ryan Fitztragic. You know about Ryan Fitzmagic. We also must acknowledge Ryan Fitztragic. We shall do so on this podcast. Huge win for the Capitals on Tuesday night, sticking it to old Trotsy and his Islanders in the biggest game of the Cap season so far. We shall properly celebrate that, including another milestone for Alex Ovechkin. Special guest on the podcast on this Wednesday, Mike Petriello, StatCast analyst for MLB.com, one of the smartest baseball guys out there and one of the biggest Juan Soto fans out there. He has just over the last few months written multiple pieces showering Soto with praise. We'll talk Soto. Uh, Nats and actually some Orioles, Mike, uh, coming up in just a bit. Tuesday, actually not a good day for the Nats and O's from a standpoint of how their starting pitchers did in exhibition games. Patrick Corbin got rocked and old King Felix Hernandez actually looked good, uh, but he got hurt. Uh, so we'll discuss that on the podcast. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. I got this email from Brian Wood. I actually thought this was a very intriguing idea. Brian wrote me, he said, wouldn't it be great if teams could sell other teams' cap space? My theory would be they could part with some of it for that year and give it to another team similar to how draft picks are bartered to make trades. I have never heard the idea, but it would help teams like WFT with middle first round picks that can't get a premier quarterback. I don't think that's a crazy idea. Why shouldn't you be able to trade cap space to other teams? Like you think about it, cap space in the NFL is an asset. You should be able to wheel and deal with your assets. You should be able to trade any of your assets. You know, in baseball, you can trade away these international bonus slots. So I'm not going to, I mean, it's not the same thing as the salary cap in the NFL, but it's not totally unrelated either. So there is kind of sort of a precedent for this, but I like how you're thinking, Brian, forward thinking, outside the box thinking, innovative thinking. That's what we're about here on the Al Galdi podcast, which I must say remains top 20 in the country on Apple Podcasts in the U.S. football category. Looked it up as we're taping here this morning, number 20 in the nation on Apple Podcasts when it comes to the U.S. football category. We are one spot ahead of Chris Sims. There you go. Stick it to old Chrissy Sims and be ahead of him on the Apple Podcast chart. So thank you so much again for your support of this podcast. Subscribe, rate, review, spread the word 
all that good stuff. All right, Washington has struck again. Has it found itself a shutdown corner? It's so funny, isn't it, how day two of the NFL's legal tampering period ended up playing out a lot like day one of the legal tampering period from a standpoint of the Washington football team, right? The legal tampering period gets going noon Monday. We're all kind of waiting, getting a little antsy of where's the Washington football team news, all this cap space, and we're not hearing about anything. And then sure enough, late night, Monday night, the Ryan Fitzpatrick news breaks. Tuesday, same kind of thing. Another quiet day, another slow day from a Washington football team standpoint. You do see Hunter Henry come off the market. How about, by the way, what the New England Patriots are doing, forming this uh, uber tandem at tight end. You know, shades of Rob Gronkowski and Aaron Hernandez, right, with hopefully uh, neither guy being charged for murder moving forward here. But Hunter Henry and Jonu Smith, the top two tight ends on the free agent market, both going to Bill Belichick and the Patriots. And I don't know about you, but... I know I wanted Washington to get Jonu Smith, and then with Hunter Henry out there, I'm like, okay, well, maybe they're just going to get Hunter Henry. It's like, no, they don't get him either. So you're saying, what's happening here? The receiver market remains ultra slow. This has really become interesting. A depressed free agent receiver market, to be sure. Kenny Galladay, Curtis Samuel, Juju Smith-Schuster, all still out there. Definitely feel like that's something that Washington can capitalize on. Washington is going to get itself a receiver. I'm convinced of that. But Washington, it's looking more and more, is going to get itself a bargain of a receiver in terms of the way this market is trending. So that's good news, but it's taking a while to develop. And then, of course, what happens late night, Tuesday night, another big splash by Washington, getting itself unrestricted free agent corner, William Jackson III of the Cincinnati Bengals. So the deal reportedly is a three-year, $42 million contract with $26 million guaranteed. Now, you may hear that, you may read that and say to yourself, wow, three years, $42 million. That is huge. That is a mega money deal. Uh, yes and no. Yes and no. Understand, three years, $42 million, that works out to $14 million per year, right? A $14 million average annual value, AAV. That's only tied for ninth among current cornerback contracts in the NFL per overthecap.com. Cornerback money is big time in today's game. $14 million per year is in the top 10, but it's at the bottom of the top 10. So I think that's where you kind of start with this. Like, yeah, it's real money. I'm not trying to tell you that it's not. But this is not, say, Jalen Ramsey money or Marlon Humphrey money or Tredavious White money or Darius Slay money or Byron Jones money or James Bradbury money. $14 million per year is actually a pretty good deal to get a guy who you feel like can play at a high level. So I start with that. I really like the contract terms here, a $14 million AAV for William Jackson III. What stood out as much as anything, and if you were on Twitter, you know this, the widespread praise for this signing by Washington, especially when viewed through that prism of the contract. ESPN NFL prognosticator, as he labels himself, Mike Clay, tweeted the following on Tuesday night. Huge, in all caps. Jackson is arguably a top 10 cornerback with the ability to shadow opposing number ones. A very good Washington defense gets even stronger. And quote, Doug Farrar, another smart NFL guy, the NFL editor for USA Today Sports, he tweeted, quote, the WFT got a CB1 for CB2 money. Can't do much better than that, end quote. Farrar graded the signing as an A+, called Jackson the best corner 
in the 2021 free agency class and called Jackson one of the five best man coverage corners in the NFL. This is not one of these deals that's being like harpooned or anything like that. Quite the opposite. This is a deal that is being praised and it should be praised. And you think about now a Washington defense, right, that in 2020 was number two in the NFL in pass defense for football outsiders DVOA metric. And yes, Ronald Darby was a big part of that. And yes, Ronald Darby is gone. That's true. But you may have just upgraded in getting William Jackson the third, because as we talked about on Tuesday's podcast, it is far from a given that Darby was going to play at the level he played at in 2020 and 2021. In other words, Darby had a great contract year, but that's not the Darby we had seen in recent seasons. And Washington, to me, with Darby, did the thing that smart NFL teams do. You sign a guy to a bargain basement contract, he outperforms the contract, you, in essence, as a team, win the contract, and then you let somebody else overpay him, you know? And that may well be what has happened here with Ronald Darby. So William Jackson III, listed by the Bengals as being six feet tall, 196 pounds. He had a very good 2020 for Cincinnati over 14 games. Finished the season with an overall grade for pro football focus of 71.4. That's not, you know, elite or anything like that, but that is good. That is quite good. Uh, Jackson in the 2020 season for the NFL's next-gen stats allowed for a completion percentage of just 57.9 when he was the nearest defender. How about that? A completion percentage allowed of 57.9 as the nearest defender. And how about this? When Jackson was lined up against a receiver on the outside of a formation, and this is where Jackson does his best work. He's a boundary corner. He allowed for a completion percentage of just 56.1. That's outstanding. Uh, Jackson in the 2020 season had 11 pass defenses, eight more than he had over 14 games in 2019. Jackson over his four seasons of actually playing, because he missed his rookie season in its entirety due to a torn pec. So you look at the four seasons in which William Jackson III has played, 2017 through 2020, uh, he per pro football focus has allowed for a completion percentage of just 52. So, you know, the great completion percentage allowed work that I just referenced, it's not just a last year thing, it's an overall body of work thing. You know, Jackson in his first season of playing, 2017, actually had one of the best seasons that you'll ever see a corner have. And look, truth be told, cornerback play is largely year to year. Like you look at the individual stats for a lot of these corners, and I'm talking more so the advanced stuff, not just, you know, like interceptions or something like that. A lot of it is year to year, like a lot of it is up and down. Jackson, basically, three of his four seasons in which he's played has been good. The bad year was 2019. We'll get to that in a moment. But 17, 18, 20, all good to great seasons. And that 2017 season was a great season. For PFF that season, Jackson forced incompletions on an absurd 17 of the 43 pass attempts that came his way. 17 of the 43, nearly half of the targets that came William Jackson the third's way in 2017 resulted in not just incompletions, but forced incompletions by Jackson. He had a coverage grade for PFF that season of 90.4. So he has played at a very high level. He has demonstrated an ability to play at an all pro level. Now, there are concerns with William Jackson the third, okay? You know how we roll here on the Al Goldie podcast. It's not just, you know, bouquets and candy canes and lollipops, all right? We give you the truth. We speak the truth. We preach the truth on this show. That's very, very hard to do. You should Google that. Yes, thank you, Danny. People should Google that. But here would be, to me, the concerns with William Jackson III. So first of all, he had a very good 2020, like I said, 
But his 2019 season was bad, okay? He is just one year removed from a rather poor season. Jackson in 2019, over 14 games for PFF, a coverage grade of just 55.2, forced incompletions on a mere two of 64 pass attempts that came his way that year. Now, look, Bengals have not been a very good team. I I think, you know, you can excuse a bad year for somebody. But it is worth noting that. Like I said, with a lot of corners, they are year to year. Jackson, four seasons of actually playing, three to four seasons, he's been good, but that one bad year wasn't very good, 2019, and the advanced numbers definitely emphasize that. Uh, Jackson also is older for his draft class. The 2021 season will be Jackson's age 29 season. Uh, you always want to, you know, try to sign guys as young as possible. You know, like you want to get your free agents in their mid-20s, if at all possible. It's one of the reasons why I really like Washington being in on Curtis Samuel, if in fact that is the case. We do think it is, but of course, he's still out there. But Curtis Samuel is in his mid-20s, you know? You never want to do the thing. One of the principal rules for doing free agency, really in any sport, is don't pay a guy in his 30s for what he did in his 20s. Now, Jackson is not in his 30s, but he's not far from his 30s. Like I said, going into his age 29 season, he was taken by Cincinnati with the number 24 pick in the 2016 draft out of Houston. You know, I've talked about this with Brandon Sheriff, how he is old for his draft class, that 2015 draft class. Jackson is old for his draft class, the 2016 draft class. Not the end of the world, but something to be mindful of. As is this, Jackson does come to Washington with a bit of an injury history. Now, it's not overwhelming. You know, it's not honestly what Ronald Darby came to Washington with off uh, how things went for him over his three seasons with the Philadelphia Eagles, but it's not like Jackson every season is playing 16 games. He missed his entire 2016 rookie season due to a torn peck that was suffered early in Bengals training camp that year. Jackson has played in 59 of a possible 64 regular season games over the last four years, so he does post, but Jackson in 2020 missed two games due to two different stints in concussion protocols. The guy's got a concussion history, and Jackson in 2019 battled a shoulder injury. That cost him two games. So, you know, you got to be mindful of this stuff, right? I mean, I've been preaching this, and I know a lot of you are on board with me on this. Durability matters a ton. Availability matters a ton. The last thing you want to do is give big money to someone who's not going to be available. It's one of the things that got Washington in a lot of trouble in recent years. But presumably, Washington has looked into the medicals or gotten a good sense on the medicals. And Washington is comfortable doing this. And I think Washington on the whole should be comfortable doing this. Look, every big money or bigger money contract is a risk, clearly. But you needed to fortify yourself at the cornerback spot. You needed to reestablish some inventory at corner off the defection of Ronald Darby. And just given kind of the overall state of the position for Washington, because even with Darby, you know, it's not like Washington is oozing depth at corner. You know, Washington was lucky. Fuller, Darby, Jimmy Moreland all stayed healthy for the most part in 2020. That's not going to happen every year. You know, you're going to have injuries. You know, so what do you do then? And especially assuming Fabian Moreau is gonzo via free agency. And, you know, uh, Washington didn't seem to have much interest in playing him last year. So, you know, that I think is a pretty safe assumption to make. Like, you need to get some depth. Well, William Jackson III is going to help you build that back up. And, and clearly, he's not just a depth guy. He is a starting corner for you. He is a boundary corner for you. I like this signing a lot. I think it's a smart signing. I think it's not unlike the Fuller signing, where it's not top-of-the-market money. It's kind of secondary market money for a guy who, like Fuller, has demonstrated an ability to play at a top-of-the-market level. 
And like William Jackson III, shutting down some opposing corner, one of the big supporters of this podcast, John Grandland is shutting down one of the worst aspects of selling a home. The commission. Outrageous commissions have been a staple in real estate for as long as we can remember. That has not sat right with John Grandland. And how about what he's got going on? My God, John G. with Real Broker will sell your house for free. That's right. You heard that right. For free. From the moment you call up John to the last page of the paperwork signed, he is there. He handles everything. Professional photography, detailed market analysis, a huge syndication network, and so much more to ensure that you're not hunting for buyers months on end. And when John finds you an offer for, say, $500,000, that $15,000 that you would normally pay to your listing agent stays right in your pocket. Then John helps you find the home of your dreams and everyone feels right at home. Expansive services, as I just outlined, at the lowest commission possible. Zero. Yes, zero. To learn more about this program, to find your home's value, visit johngsellsforfree.com. The website says it all. johngsellsforfree.com. Check it out, or better yet, give John Granlin a call. Make sure you tell him Al Galdi sent you. 703-537-6747. That's 703 703- 537-6747. Ridiculous commissions are a thing of the past. John Grandland is changing the game. He is a game changer. Find out what he can do for you. All right, let's do some day two thoughts right now on Ryan Fitzpatrick to Washington. So first of all, did you catch this, the Sam Darnold stuff that was out there on Tuesday? Connor Hughes, Jets insider for the Athletic New York, he on Tuesday tweeted that, quote, even after signing Ryan Fitzpatrick, I'm told Washington has not ruled out a trade for Sam Darnold, per sources. It's a bit more unlikely now, obviously, as WFT won't be willing to go as high as others in draft compensation, but they still have interest in the Jets QB, end quote. So this got out and people were like, whoa, wait a second. That doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Uh, Diana Rossini, ESPN NFL insider, she did then tweet, uh, that she had spoken to a Washington source about the team potentially still training for Donald and was told, quote, don't waste your time, end quote. So maybe it was fake news from Connor Hughes. You know, it did kind of reek of something the Jets themselves would plant just to try to further incite trade interest in Sam Donald, you know, further uh, create a bidding war for Sam Donald to whatever extent there's going to be a bidding war. But I do think this raises a very interesting item off Washington agreeing on this deal with Ryan Fitzpatrick. And that is... Is Washington truly done quarterback shopping this offseason? Or maybe, just maybe, has the fun just begun? Now look, on Tuesday's podcast, I outlined this. I said, this certainly makes it very unlikely now that Washington is going to be spending a draft choice, say, day one, day two, on a quarterback, right? I mean, one of the sub-communications to me of Washington agreeing on this deal with Ryan Fitzpatrick was... Washington doesn't like its realistic quarterback draft options. Like, otherwise, why would you do something like this? Sign a guy going into his age 39 season. Washington pretty clearly looks at itself having that number 19 overall pick and either doesn't like the quarterbacks who could potentially fall to 19 or close enough to 19, or just doesn't like a lot of the quarterbacks, period. Like, maybe after Trevor Lawrence and Zach Wilson, Ron Rivera, Martin Mayhew, Marty Herney are like, you know, the rest of these guys are really not all that, and we're just not that interested in in those guys. But we have to make this clear. Agreeing on this deal with Fitzpatrick does not eliminate the notion of Washington drafting a quarterback, right? You can't just like eradicate that. You cannot just wipe that completely off the table. And to that end, 
Did you see what one of our pals, John Kime, Washington football team insider for ESPN, wrote in a piece that came out on Tuesday? Kime wrote that it is, quote, not out of the question Washington could take a quarterback early in the 2021 NFL draft. And quote, now I think very much the likelihood of that happening has lessened. I think it's lessened big time with this Fitzpatrick deal, but it's not off the table. Like, I think we do have to acknowledge that. And let me say this, I would admire the aggressiveness, the chutzpah it would take to re-sign Taylor Heineke, re-sign Kyle Allen, sign Ryan Fitzpatrick, and still spend, say, a first or second round pick on a quarterback. That to me is actually exactly the way you do quarterback when you don't have a quarterback. You attack the position in an unrelenting fashion and you throw as many darts at the board as is reasonably possible until you find your guy. Because until you have your guy, you don't have your guy. And there's nothing that matters more than getting that guy. So I would admire the heck out of Washington were it to do this. Resign Heineke, resign Allen, sign Fitzpatrick, and spend, say, a first or a second round pick on a quarterback. Now, again, I don't think this is likely. I think getting Fitzpatrick says a lot, again, about how Washington feels about this quarterback draft class or how Washington feels about its realistic quarterback options. But it is a possibility. Washington still taking a quarterback first or second round of the draft is a possibility. And, you know, we've talked about the contract for Heineke. It does make Heineke very cuttable. I mean, I'm not in a rush to just cut Taylor Heineke, okay? And I still get a kick out of the people who are just so quick to dismiss this guy and are like, come on, he can't be the guy. Uh, again, people, he gave you the single best quarterback performance a team had in the 2020 season. And maybe that's not saying a ton, but it's not saying nothing, especially when you consider the circumstances of that game, elite defense, postseason game, facing the GOAT in Tom Brady, zero running game to speak of for Washington on that night. Heineke hurt his shoulder in the game, and he still ended up having a very good performance. You could argue the best quarterback game against the Super Bowl champion Bucks in the 2021 postseason was done by Taylor Heineke, not by Aaron Rodgers, not by Drew Brees, not even by Patrick Mahomes. You could make the case that the best quarterback game against the Bucs in the postseason was done by Heineke. I'm not in a rush to just cut a guy like that or dismiss a guy like that or label that guy as some of you have as, oh, he's just another, you know, Rex Grossman or John Beck. You know, maybe it might be the case, but how do you know that? I just, I, I, I continue to just be perplexed by this. You know, who are we to dismiss any potential quarterback option at this point? But anyway, the contract does make Heineke cuttable. You know, and it's not like, you know, you can't cut Kyle Allen off re-signing him to an exclusive rights free agent tender. Now, I don't see Washington cutting either guy, but it's possible, I suppose. You know, I I suppose it's possible Washington could end up uh, cutting or trading Fitzpatrick. I mean, I, I, you know, anything is possible. We, we recognize that, but I don't think it's likely Washington goes quarterback early in the draft. But like I said, I think we do have to say it's not like you just can completely erase that from the table. Another day two thought regarding Ryan Fitzpatrick has to do with the contract. So the contract, uh, when we first heard the news break, right, a one-year $10 million deal, maximum value of $12 million. NFL insider Albert Breer of the MMQB late on Tuesday night. I'm telling you, man, lots of stuff is happening late night these days. Uh, Breer late on Tuesday night tweeted out details of Fitzpatrick's contract with Washington. $3 million base salary, $6 million signing bonus, $1 million 
in per game roster bonuses, $2 million in incentives. So the contract is, I think, what we thought it was, which is, you know, this is not $10 million guaranteed to Ryan Fitzpatrick. This is a contract uh, for a guy who maybe is your starter, but also maybe isn't your starter. This is not some, all right, he's definitely going to be Washington's starting quarterback. Now, if you say, I think he's got the best shot at being Washington's QB1 for week one in 2021, I think that's reasonable. I don't think that's definite, though. I don't know that that's like for sure, for sure. Will you just say, okay, it's definitely Fitzpatrick. And the contract says that. It's a nice contract. It's more money than you'd give to a guy who definitely is going to be your backup. That's true. But this is not, you know, definite starting quarterback money. This is not a contract that is structured in a way where you're like, okay, he's definitely going to be Washington starter for 2021. I will say this though, you know, it's always interesting, right? You see what your team does and you see what other teams do that are comparable. And we had other quarterbacks come off the market on Tuesday, right? You had uh, Andy Dalton reportedly agreeing on a deal with the Chicago Bears. You had Tyrod Taylor reportedly agreeing on a deal with the Houston Texans. So if we call Fitzpatrick's deal with Washington one year, $10 million, max value of $12 million, compare and contrast that with the Dalton and Taylor deals. Dalton from the Bears gets one year, $10 million with a max value of $13 million. So it's essentially the same deal that Fitzpatrick got with Washington. Now you tell me, who would you rather have, Fitzpatrick or Dalton? Whose last few seasons have been better, Fitzpatrick's or Dalton's? And to me, it's not even a conversation. 100% Fitzpatrick. I talked about this on Tuesday's podcast. Whatever you think about the signing of Fitzpatrick, and he's an older guy, and he's not a road to anywhere of true consequence. Ryan Fitzpatrick, like I said, top 10 in the NFL and ESPN's total QBR each of the last two seasons. He was fifth in 2020. He was eighth in 2019, and he in 2018 didn't qualify for the QBR rankings, but was number one in the NFL in yards per pass attempt at 9.6. Ryan Fitzpatrick has demonstrated an ability to play at a high level over the last three seasons. Dalton has not. So to me, Bears get Dalton one year, $10 million. Washington gets Fitzpatrick one year, $10 million. It's not even a conversation. Like the better deal, 100% is Washington's with Fitzpatrick. And with Tyrod Taylor, we don't know a ton about his deal with the Texans. We do know, though, max value of $12.5 million. So presumably, it's similar to the Fitzpatrick and Dalton deals. Yes, I take Fitzpatrick for one season over Dalton and Taylor right now. So that should make you feel even better about Washington signing Fitzpatrick to this deal. Another thing with Fitzpatrick. So I talked on Tuesday's podcast about how he is the opposite of a lot of what we have been seeing with Washington at quarterback. And this had to do with this concept of air yards, how per the NFL's next-gen stats, the quarterbacks with the two lowest average completed air yards in the 2020 regular season were, yes, Alex Smith and Dwayne Haskins. Ryan Fitzpatrick was 13th. Fitzpatrick in the 2019 regular season, fifth in the NFL in average completed air yards. Fitzpatrick in the 2018 regular season, first in the NFL and average completed air yards. This guy is an aggressive downfield passer, the likes of which Washington has not had in a very long while. Another compare and contrast that's interesting to look at when it comes to Fitzpatrick is viewing him through the prism of pro football focus's grades. If you compare Fitzpatrick versus Alex versus Dwayne since the start of the 2019 season, so obviously for Alex, this would just include his 2020 performance because he didn't play in 2019. But how about this? So overall grade for each guy since the start of the 2019 season per pro football focus, grades are on a scale of 0 to 100. Fitzpatrick, 76. Alex, 66.9. Dwayne, 56.6. In terms of where those grades rank, 44 qualified quarterbacks 
over the last two seasons, right? At least 250 dropbacks. Fitzpatrick, 18th out of 44. Alex, 29th out of 44. Haskins, 41st out of 44. So again, it's another thing that highlights how, you know, whatever you want to say about Fitzpatrick and he's old and he's bounced around the league and ultimately he's not a long-term road to anywhere. And all that's true. None of that isn't true. This guy quantifiably has played the position at a higher level than anyone we've seen for any substantial amount of time for Washington since Kirk Cousins left. I mean, that's the thing. Ryan Fitzpatrick, if you want to be honest about this, is the best quarterback or at least the most proven best quarterback that Washington has had since the days of old Kirky. I'm a little bit more process oriented. Yes, we know, Kirk. We know. We get it. You love your process. Now, there is something with Ryan Fitzpatrick that needs to be understood. And I know a lot of you are aware of this already, but let's go ahead and uh, get it on the record here. So there is, of course, the nickname for Ryan Fitzpatrick of Ryan Fitzmagic because the guy be throwing bombs. But there's also the nickname for Ryan Fitzpatrick of Ryan Fitztragic because the guy be throwing picks. He has thrown interceptions. He has had an interception problem over the course of his career. So probably the best example of Ryan Fitztragic came in week 17 of the 2015 season. And I'll always remember this because I remember I was at a bar doing the official Washington football team postgame show. And if you remember week 17 of the 2015 season, that was a glorious week for us as Washington football team fans because Washington had already clinched the NFC East with that Saturday night win of the Philadelphia Eagles in week 16. Week 17 meant nothing from a standing standpoint. It was a game, though, at the Dallas Cowboys. You knew Washington was in the postseason. Washington, from a seating standpoint, was locked in. So it was just kind of an easy, breezy, low-stress Washington football team game. It ended up being a Washington football team win against a bad Dallas team that season. Kirk actually played really well. Then Colt McCoy came into the game. It's like one of the few stress-free Washington games we've had here in a very long time. But anyway, as that game is going on, you had this complete implosion for the New York Jets on that Sunday. And Ryan Fitztragic was a big part of that. It was a 22-17 loss for the Jets at the Buffalo Bills in a loss that caused the Jets to miss the playoffs, even with a 10-6 and record. Fitzpatrick in that game completed just 16 of 37 pass attempts and threw three interceptions all in the fourth quarter. That was Ryan Fitztragic. Uh, another thing, and this is kind of related to Washington too. So do you remember the John Beck game? The game in which poor John Beck got sacked 10 times. It was a 23-0 Washington loss to the Buffalo Bills in Toronto, October 30th, 2011. Two days before that game, news broke that the Bills had agreed on a six-year contract extension with Ryan Fitzpatrick. Fitzpatrick was actually having a pretty decent season, you know, uh, certainly played well against Washington on that Sunday in Toronto. Uh, but Ryan Fitzpatrick completely fell apart over the rest of that season. And that contract extension was a big time boo-boo for the Bills. Fitzpatrick over the Bills final 10 games of that 2011 season, 12 touchdown passes versus 17 interceptions. So he throws picks. He does have a history of doing this. Now it's worth noting Fitzmagic over the last two seasons with the Miami Dolphins, an interception percentage, it's that's simply uh, interceptions divided by pass attempts, of 2.73. That's actually not terrible. It is, though, below league average. The league average interception percentage over the last two seasons is 2.26. So he's about half a percentage point worse than the rest of the league. So, you know, it's not like he's just, oh my God, incapable of not throwing picks. 
But it is that he has been even more recently with some improved play below league average when it comes to throwing interceptions. So yeah, you're going to have some picks with Ryan Fitzpatrick. That is true. Uh, that's a bugaboo uh, in his game. But I don't know about you. I will take some extra picks if they also come with extra big plays. And Washington has been so lacking in the explosive play in the passing game in recent years. You know, if the guy ends up throwing a few more interceptions than you like, I don't think that's the end of the world, okay? The the, the problem to have with the Ryan Fitzpatrick signing, if you want to have a problem with it, is, again, what we talked about on Tuesday, that you're basically saying, or at least probably saying, we're not trading for Sam Darnold, we're not trading for Marcus Mariota, we're not taking a quarterback with the first or second round pick. You know, this is kind of what we're going into the 2021 season with Fitzpatrick, Heineke, Allen. And yes, all that stuff could change, but you tell me right now, like, it seems to be more likely than not that your three-headed quarterback monster for 2021, in some order, is Fitzpatrick, Heineke, and Allen. So if you're not going to take a quarterback day one or day two of the draft, if you're not going to trade for a guy who, yes, has not been very good, but also still is young enough to where you could maybe rehab him into something, a la the Tennessee Titans with Ryan Tannehill and Sam Darnold or Marcus Mariota, you better be right. Like, those guys better not end up killing it somewhere else. You know, a Kyle Trask or a Mac Jones or a Trey Lance should one or more fall to Washington at number 19 or fall close enough to Washington at number 19, end up not being great. And just kind of punting on finding a true franchise quarterback in the 2021 offseason needs to be looked back upon as, you know what, they made the right call that offseason. They didn't overextend themselves. They didn't panic. They didn't force themselves to fall in love with someone who wasn't worthy of that. They signed Ryan Fitzpatrick to a one-year deal, and they figured quarterback out between Fitzpatrick, Allen, and Heineke. So that would be the issue to have with Ryan Fitzpatrick signing if you want to have an issue. He's he's not a road to anywhere long-term. You know, at best, he can help you to like a 9-7, and 10-6 and six type year in 2021. As I keep saying, it's not just about 2021. It's about 2021 and beyond, okay? And that's the approach I've wanted with this entire offseason with Washington. Fitzpatrick doesn't really fit into that. That is true. So you better be right about these other quarterback options that, in theory, you're saying aren't good enough for you. But yeah, if you're just evaluating Ryan Fitzpatrick, you're getting a guy who's played well over the last few years, whose teammates love him. And again, and I can't emphasize this enough, a guy who has played the position in a much different way than we've become accustomed to over the last few years. We had another big win for the Capitals on Tuesday night. Feels like we've been saying that a decent amount here lately. The Capitals not just winning, but winning some big games. And the Caps come through on Tuesday night in their biggest game of the season to date. A 3-1 win over the New York Islanders at Capital One Arena. The Caps get to 19-6-4, win their season-best sixth consecutive game, snap the Islanders' nine-game winning streak, and move into a tie with the Isles for first place in the East Division at 42 points. The Caps did old Trutzy and his Islanders dirty at Cap One on Tuesday night. And something else could happen on Tuesday night. The Pittsburgh Penguins lost. The Pens, they had won six consecutive games. That winning streak now over a 2-1 home loss to the Boston Bruins. So very good night all around for the Capitals from a standing standpoint. Caps now, by the way, also 6-0-0 without Tom Wilson during a seven-game suspension. Isn't that something? I mean, nobody was happy about Tom Wilson getting that seven-game suspension. And yet here the Caps are now 6-0-0. They've done nothing but win without old Wilson 
during this seven-game suspension. That's been tremendous. Caps also winning another game on Tuesday night without Lars Eller. He did not play for a second consecutive game due to a lower body injury that was suffered in that 5-4 win at the Philadelphia Flyers on Saturday night. So the, so the Caps on Tuesday night for essentially a fourth straight game went with just 11 forwards and seven defensemen. That's another thing about what the Caps are doing here right now. They're doing it with this Fukakta lineup where they're not even going with 12 forwards game in and game out. It's 11 forwards, seven defensemen, and the Caps still are winning here. Uh, just a tremendous job by Peter Laviolette and his players. Now, the Caps did continue to do the thing that we've been harping on in this podcast, and that is win despite losing the puck possession battle. I, I'm not really sure how to feel about this anymore because the Caps keep winning, so it's like at the end of the day, that's what matters. But the uh, the process, as our friend Kirk might say. I'm a little bit more process-oriented. Yes, we know, Kirk. Thank you. You don't have to keep saying that. Uh, the process does leave a lot to be desired here with the Caps. They lose the puck possession battle again on Tuesday night. For natural stature, Caps had 38 five-on-five shot attempts to the Islanders' 46, had five high-danger five-on-five shot attempts to the Islanders' nine. So, you know, it's not just the overall five-on-five shot attempts. It's the high-danger five-on-five shot attempts, right? You, you look at puck possession clearly through a prism of even-strength play. So you put aside power play, penalty kill, because things get skewed on special teams. Five-on-five is where you want to be good at. Uh, I mean, you want to be good everywhere. But five-on-five is what is, I think, most telling about how good you are as a hockey team. And it's not just that the Caps routinely lose the five-on-five shot attempt battle. The Caps are, are like, routinely getting doubled up or maybe even worse in the high-danger five-on-five shot attempt category. And, and that's the one that matters the most. But like I said, the Caps do keep winning. So, I, you know, I can't sit here and, like, be that upset about what we're seeing. Uh, it is worth noting, both the Caps and Islanders uh, finished with 22 shots on goal on Tuesday night. So it's not like one team bombarded uh, the other team's opposing goaltender a ton. Uh, the Caps goaltender was Ilya Samsonov, and he was good. Uh, he was a Caps starting goaltender for the fifth time and nine games. You know, I said on Tuesday's podcast, who got the nod, who the Caps starting goaltender was for this game. Again, biggest game of the Caps season to date, I thought was going to be telling. So I think it does tell us a lot that it was Samsonov, not Vitek Vanacek, who was in net on Tuesday night. And Samsonov was good. Now, he wasn't tested a ton. He, for the game, faced just three high danger shots per natural stat trick, and he stopped all of them. But look, he stopped 21 to 22 shots on goal overall. I mean, you know, hard to complain about that. Uh, Samsonov was especially good in the first period during which he stopped all 11 of the shots on goal that he faced. So no, he wasn't tested a ton overall, but in the first period, he did have to make some stops, and he did. He made all of them. So good job by Ilya Samsonov. You know, he was not coming off a particularly good outing in his last game that went at the Flyers on Saturday night. Samsonov in that game uh, stopped just 28 of 32 shots on goal. So a nice uh, bounce-back performance in a lot of ways for Samsonov against the Islanders. Caps' power play was excellent on Tuesday night. Two of four. Uh, actually, three to four goals in the game were power play goals. The Islanders' lone goal uh, was a third-period power play goal. But the Caps get two power play goals. And Alex Ovechkin has one of them. A second-period power play goal. Ovechkin striking 15-24 into the second period, giving the Caps a 2-0 lead. Scores from where else? The OV office, that is the left circle, on what else? A one-timer, with time actually ticking down on that Caps power play. And this is a milestone goal. It is goal number 718 in the regular season career of the grade eight. It moves Ovechkin past Phil Esposito for sixth in NHL history in terms of career regular season goals. So Ovi continues to climb that list. He's now up to number six alone uh, in possession of number six in NHL history. And he's closing in on another milestone here. That goal on Tuesday night, that was Ovi's 264th career regular season power play goal. So that's got him within one of tying Brett Hole for number two 
in NHL history in career regular season power play goals. And there was this. Uh, Ovi in the game on Tuesday night had a secondary assist. The assist came before the goal. The assist made Ovechkin just the 35th player in NHL history with 1,300 career regular season points. This is where we're at with Ovi. With like, we're like every little thing that he does is, well, he's tied this guy for that and he's moved past uh, this guy for this. And it's like, it's every, every game, it feels like we're doing this, but we should. He's an all-time great. He is quantifiably a better goal scorer than Wayne Gretzky was. If you look at Ovechkin via the HockeyReference.com adjusted goals metric, which adjusts goal totals for offensive environment, Ovechkin long ago passed Wayne Gretzky on that list. The list is Gordie Howe 1, Yarmir Yager 2, Ovechkin 3, Gretzky 4. You know, Gretzky, remember, played in a high-octane offensive era in the NHL, the 1980s, when goaltenders were skinny minis, and, and, and they were like no padding. Uh, hockey's very different now, has been very different for years. A goal in the NHL in 2020-2021, very different than a goal in the NHL in, say, you know, 1985-1986. There has been a deflation in scoring in the NHL over the years. And so Ovechkin's goal total, you, know, you can't just get caught up in like the raw numbers. You do have to adjust for the offensive era. And Ovechkin, better than Gretzky. I feel like this never gets talked about enough. Again, adjusted goals, Ovechkin, it's not just that he's passed Gretzky. He long ago passed Wayne Gretzky in that department. And Ovechkin is playing well this season. Been talking about that on the podcast, right? So on Tuesday night, not just the power play goal and the secondary assist, he also led the Caps. Ovechkin did with eight shot attempts. Uh, finished tied for fourth on the caps in best five on five shot attempt percentage for the game per natural stat trick and Ovechkin tied for team best with four hits. So another very good game for Alex Ovechkin. Nicholas Backstrom had a goal and an assist on Tuesday night. Third period power play goal, secondary assist as well. Uh, Backstrom, as we speak on this Wednesday, tied for ninth in the NHL with 33 points. His power play goal came just 28 seconds into the third period, gave the caps a 3 nothing lead. And you love seeing that goal. It really gave the Caps a nice cushion with which to work in that third period. Backstrom scoring from the low slot right in front of the crease off a great seam pass by Jacob Vrana from the right circle. Awesome job there by Vrana. And the secondary assist, by the way, on that goal going to defenseman John Carlson. Carlson, by the way, uh, a milestone of his own. That assist tied Carlson with Mike Gartner for the fourth most regular season assists in Caps history at 392. Carlson is having another very good year. Uh, he, as we speak on this Wednesday, second among all NHL defensemen in points at 25. And your other Caps goal coming from TJ Oshie. He had an even strength goal, 1036 into the second period for a one nothing Caps lead. Oshie's goal coming at the end of an odd man rush for the Caps, easily depositing the rebound of a shot by Evgeny Kuznetsov. Uh, it was a really good shot by Kuzi. Went off the inside of the right post with the Islanders goaltender, the former capital, Semyon Varlamov, way out of the crease. Uh, and in fact, near the bottom of the left circle, Varlamov came out to defend Kuznetsov. Kuznetsov got the puck around Varlamov. The puck, as I said, went off the uh, inside of the right post. And then Oshi there uh, to deposit the rebound. The Caps are rolling. Uh, this is so great to see. You know, first season for Laviolette as a Caps head coach. Caps have dealt with a bunch of absences this season, either due to COVID-19 protocols or injury or suspension. And it just hasn't mattered. 19-6-4 on the year. Season best six-game winning streak. Huge win over the Islanders on Tuesday night. And that game, by the way, game one of a stretch of six consecutive games for the Caps at home. Uh, so you got Caps uh, playing a bunch of home games here coming up. Home to the New York Rangers are the Caps Friday night at 7. And then back at it with the Rangers at Capital One Arena on Saturday night at 7.
Our special guest, Mike Petriello, StatCast analyst for MLB.com, raving about Juan Soto. That's coming up in mere moments here. But let's get to the Nationals news from Tuesday. And there was good news and there was not so good news. We'll start with the good news. The good news is that John Lester is ready to make his Nationals exhibition debut. Uh, Lester has cleared all hurdles since rejoining the Nats following that March 5th surgery to remove one of his parathyroid glands. He is slated to start on Thursday against the New York Mets in a Grapefruit League game. Uh, Davey Martinez giving us that word on Tuesday. So good news there. And it's good news not just from a standpoint of like how Lester is doing health-wise or how Lester is doing in terms of ramping up for the season. But with Steven Strasburg now dealing with this left calf strain, which again, we don't think is a big deal, but of course you just never know. Um, you don't want to be lingering here with, okay, two-fifths of your projected rotation uh, being up in the air. Uh, regarding the start of the regular season. And at least now it's feeling like, all right, Lester's probably going to be okay. You know, I stress that word probably. You know, we don't know until he actually pitches here. But, you know, if Lester's good to go, Strasburg, hopefully this isn't a serious thing anyway. But even if it it requires some extra ramp-up time, it's not like, okay, you got to start the season and you only have Max Scherzer, Patrick Corbin, and Joe Ross making up your rotation and you're not sure what else to do about at least the other spot. Because really when you begin the year, you don't need all five guys. You really need four spots in a rotation. But good news there with Lester. Hopefully Strasburg uh, progresses well, and it's not even an issue come the start of the regular season. Remember this too, with how the baseball season starts for teams. You have your opening game, then you have an off day, then you have game number two. Like if you look at the national schedule, game number one is on Thursday night, April 1st against the Mets. Then you have an off day on Friday, and then you're back at it that Saturday. So presumably, right, it's Max as the number one, Strasburg as the number two. So you go Max opening night, day off, and then you don't need Strasburg till that Saturday. So that, that's an extra day here that could actually end up serving Strasburg and the Nats well in terms of his availability for what is supposed to be his first start of the season. So that's the good news with the Nats from Tuesday. The bad news, though, is this. Patrick Corbin got spanked in his Grapefruit League start. Four runs in three and two-thirds innings in a 4-3 loss to the Miami Marlins on Tuesday evening. And this is not one of these games where you say, well, you know, some bad luck here, uh, you know, and fielding error there, that sort of thing. Like, no, Corbin didn't look good. He had just two strikeouts versus four hits, including two homers in the top of the third inning. He issued four walks, which is probably as troubling as anything. And the Marlins seem to be ambushing Corbin. Uh, the Marlins at one point put four of Corbin's five first pitches in play. It's one game. It's an exhibition game. A lot of pitchers in these Grapefruit League starts are working on things, so they're maybe not even trying their best or doing exactly as they would do in the regular season. I get all that. But with Patrick Corbin, I think the conversation is a little different because he wasn't good in 2020. You know, it's not like he's coming off a great season and you say, all right, you know, this is this is not really anything to worry about. It's a guy who in 2020 really struggled. Diminished velocity, strikeout rate plummeted, had the worst hits allowed total in Major League Baseball at 85, had an ERA of 466 over 65 and two-thirds innings in 11 starts. Now, I don't think Patrick Corbin's a bad pitcher. We all remember what he did in 2019, but, you know, he is going into his age 31 season, and you do want to see the guy be better. Like, you know, this is only year three of that six-year, $140 million contract that the Nats signed him to in December 2018. I think the good news of Corbin is he had looked pretty good over his first two exhibition starts, uh, including having velocity that was encouraging in that second start, that more recent start, three scoreless innings, three strikeouts in a uh, one-all tie with the Marlins last Thursday afternoon. It's kind of an odd thing. All three of Corbin's exhibition starts here 
have come against Miami. But he did not look good on Tuesday evening. And if he doesn't look good again in his next start, you know, I think there is a conversation of like, what exactly are you going to be getting from Patrick Corbin in 2021? I think most people are willing to write off 2022. Odd year, weird year. You know, you had to ramp up and then you had to ramp up again because of the shutdown. Corbin has a body of work that suggests that's not who he is. Uh, yes, and I, and I do think that, but I did not, I did not like seeing that on Tuesday evening. I'm like, uh, hey, Patrick, uh, we need you to bounce back here, pal. Uh, four walks, two homers allowed. Uh, not good, not good. So, uh, hopefully a mere blip on the radar for Patrick Corbin and not a sign of what's to come. And now to our special guest. All right, very pleased to welcome on right now to the Al Galdi podcast, Mike Petriello, StatCast analyst for MLB.com. You see him on MLB Network all the time. He is a big fan of Juan Soto, as the rest of us are. Uh, Mike's written some terrific pieces on Soto over the last few months, including a column that came out just a few days ago with the headline, Have We Ever Seen a Trio Like This Before? It's Impossible to Overhype the Tatis Acuna Soto Triumvirate. Mike, it's great to talk to you again. How are you? I'm doing great, Al. Thanks for having me, and really, thanks for giving me the opportunity to wax poetic about Juan Soto, because I just feel like it's not possible to do that enough. I know you enjoy it. We enjoy it, too, here in D.C., no doubt. So you, you wrote this piece that came out the other day. You also wrote that piece back in December, comping Soto to Ted Williams, and I know how people can be, right? Like, they, they never want to hear that the stars of today are as good, or dare I say, even better than the stars of yesteryear. I'm just curious, what kind of a reaction do you get to these glowing pieces on Soto? Well, with its reactions from Nationals fans, they're very excited about it. <laughs> there's there's one Twitter account, I think it's like at TalkNats or something like that. Yeah. Very excited whenever I talk about Juan Soto. Um, I think it's like three reactions. It's that, you've got like the knowledgeable baseball fans who are like, yeah, this guy rules. And then you have people who I think are borderline offended that you can compare someone who's relatively young to like, you think about these legends like Ted Williams, Babe Ruth, they're not even people anymore, right? They're like sepia tone legends. I mean, a lot of people were like, yeah, but Ted Williams fought in two wars. I'm like, you sure did? I, I hope Juan Soto never has to. Do that. that would be terrible. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, it, it's a, you can't win, right? Like on one hand, you always hear, well, baseball doesn't hype up its stars enough. And on the other hand, it's like, it's too soon, right? This one, they're 35, as though I should just not talk about Juan Soto for the next 14 years. Yeah, it really is funny, the psychology of it, of like, if something happened in the past, like, it has to be better than something happening right now. But anyway, uh, you understand analytics very well. What stands out to you the most about Soto when studying his numbers? Easily for me is plate discipline, right? Like, he hits the ball hard. He's not the hardest hitting guy in baseball. You know, he makes good contact, doesn't make the best contact in baseball. But for a guy this young to have this kind of plate discipline, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I, I think it was like 41 walks and 27 strikeouts or something like that last year, which is not out of character for him. That's the kind of skill uh, that does two things for me. One is to see it this young is pretty rare, but it also it's something that ages pretty well. You know, like guys tend to slow down if they're very fast, and a lot of skills get worse. But like plate discipline is something that, that ages really well, and it's hard to it's it's hard to be this elite at that this young. And not have it last because the the single most valuable skill, it's overly simplistic to say this because it's hard to do, is swing at the good pitches and don't swing at the bad pitches, you know? And he does that already as good or better than anybody in the game. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, it's, it's something Mike Rizzo's talked about many times, how Soto has this, like, plate stubbornness where, like, he just will not chase pitches. And 
Off your article back in December, comping Soto to Ted Williams, and of course, Jason Stark of The Athletic had a similar piece that came out recently. I, I was looking at each guy's walk percentages, and you know, Soto, he's had these walk percentages in recent years in the 16s. And it was interesting with Ted Williams, because his initial walk percentages were like, you know, really good, but actually not as good as Soto's. But then Williams' walk percentages soared into the 20s. And I'm wondering with Soto, like, what do you think is, for lack of a better phrase, like the end of the internet here in terms of like how high that walk percentage can be? Like basically, you know, since like, I guess what, Barry Bonds at a steroid peak, we haven't seen guys walk like this. How high do you think that can go? Like just getting on base constantly. Yeah, and Bonds was also fueled by a ton of intentional walks. Right? Yeah, right. I don't think we're ever going to see the likes of again. Um, I I do think there's a ceiling to this. You know, like I don't think he's going to get the uh, you know you don't get the four pitches anymore, right? But like the the instant walk to first base, I think you know in in baseball, even though he's well respected, he's still young, and I think he maybe hasn't earned the Barry Bonds respect yet. You know, maybe maybe he should. <sighs> maybe guys are like, I haven't had the chance to challenge him yet. Like I haven't faced this guy yet. I want to see what I can do. I don't think he's going to walk like thirty percent of the time. You know, there's a ceiling to that. So I think he's kind of. I won't say he's reached his peak, but I think he's at or near as, as high as that walk rate is going to go. So I know this has come up with Joey Votto in the past of like, is his walk rate too high? I, I mean, people have said this about Ted Williams that like, you know, he would take a borderline pitch when his team really needed a big hit just to get on base and kind of go through his process the right way. Are you at all a believer in that, that like there is such a thing as walking too much and sometimes you do have to be more aggressive than your plate discipline might allow, and you maybe have to chase some pitches given the context of the game? Or, or do you say, look, your job is to get on base, you do that as often as possible? You know, it's funny you bring up Votto, because whenever I see uh, uh, batters complaining about a called strike, I usually take the umpire's side of it, except if it's Votto or, or Juan Soto. Yeah. <laughs> those, guys right. those two guys, they know what a strike pick is. Um, I think there is maybe a little bit to that, like in the aggregate, no. Like overall, I don't care. You can probably cherry pick some individual... Uh, situations, especially with the Nationals lineup, right? Like last year, it was a, it was a two man lineup. There's Turner, who was great, Soto, who was great, and that's it. And even this year, it's like, okay, Bell's fine, Schwarber's fine. It's it's still not a strong lineup, in my opinion. And so, if you are in a situation where it's like, you know, it's the ninth inning and there's two outs, and you know, there's a tying run on base, and you know, Turner's already on base, let's say, so the guys behind you are a considerable drop off. Um, do I want him taking a walk, or do I want him? Making contact, listen, there's a limit. You don't want him to like swing out of his shoes at some awful pitch. Certainly not. Um, but if it's borderline in that situation, do I want the walk or do I want him swinging at a pitch that's not like the perfect pitch? Probably. But really, how often does that come up? Right. A couple of times a year? Probably not that often. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm with you on that. So this most recent piece isn't, of course, just about Soto. It's also about Fernando Tatis Jr. and Ronald Acuna. And you make the interesting comparison of Soto, Tatis, Acuna on one side Mike Trout, Bryce Harper, Manny Machado on the other side. It's, it's amazing, right? Like, time flies. It wasn't that long ago. Trout, Harper, Machado, you know, the, the three young players, rising players, how great can they be? Just looking at it, is one triumvirate, one trio better than the other at this point? Well, one of them has Mike Trout, who's probably the best player to ever live. Yeah. So I think that I think that one's better. But listen, like, these guys are still so young. You know, I started thinking about it just in the sense of, they seem linked to me in a lot of ways. Like they they don't play the same position. Obviously, they're not in the same town, um, but they're all almost exactly the same age. They're all born within like 13 or 14 months of one another, uh, and they all you know are unbelievably good. Like I was thinking of the fact that I write about Soto a lot, and I talk about Tatis a lot, and it almost feels like Acuna gets left out a little bit, which is ridiculous because Acuna is amazingly good. You know, so I wrote about 
you know, have we ever had like a trio like this? And yeah, the guys you mentioned, I found, you know, Ty Cobb and Tris Speaker and Eddie Collins from literally a hundred years ago, more than that, 1909. And that's, that's kind of it. And I think that's a really cool thing for baseball. Like it's a, it's a great thing that these guys are all here at the same time. And it's, I'm not going to sit here today with their ages being what they are and saying all three of them would be in Cooperstown. But if you would ask me what's more likely, all three get in or none of them get in, I would easily say all three of them get in. You know, like that's how good, that's how unprecedented they are. As far as the other comparison, you know, those guys have had more time. Um, Harper had one of the all-time greatest seasons in baseball history. Has he lived up to all of the hype? Maybe not. Uh, same with Machado, but those guys are still really good, you know? So if this trio ends up with one all-time great and two regular all-stars, uh, that's pretty good, too. Yeah, so you bring up Harper and Machado, and we, of course, had an up-close look at each guy here in the D.C. area with Harper coming up with the Nationals, Machado with the Orioles, and you know, it's not like either guy is bad. Uh, you know, you just talked about some of that. I mean, Harper and Machado both had very good 2020 seasons. But it is interesting. Like, it, it feels like Harper doesn't come up a lot anymore. When people talk about the bright young stars in baseball, and, you know, Machado is good, but he's been, like, totally overshadowed by Tatis with the San Diego Padres. Oh, is each guy, like, maybe now kind of underrated? You know, is, is the luster off those guys? What do you think is the right way to view Harper and Machado in 2021? Yeah, that's exactly the joke I was I was about to make. It's like, can you believe Bryce Harper of all people may be underrated? Yeah, like we don't talk about Bryce yeah. Harper enough. And I, I think part of it, you know, obviously the hype. He was a Sports Illustrated cover when he was sixteen or whatever. And I think at first the conversation was, okay, who's going to be better, Trout or Harper? Uh, that conversation is pretty much settled. You know, Trout is like the greatest player ever. To be second best to that, I don't think is a demerit. But I, I do think part of it for Harper is, you know, he had that one monstrously great season. And I think that raised the hype level maybe to, uh, you know, everything had to go right to do that even for him. And he hasn't been able to do that. But there's a big difference between not doing that and not being great. I mean, last year, it's 50% better than average. You know, 151 weighted runs created plus. You know, I get a 542 slugging percentage. He was really, really good. Part of it is his Phillies team hasn't been that good. You know, they don't look like they're going to be very good this year. So is he underrated? Somehow, yeah. I mean, Machado a little bit too. That first year... In San Diego, was only okay. Um, there was some bad taste about his time with the Dodgers, right? He had the whole spiking, whoever it was, Aguiar, I think, incident. So I, I do think both of them are outstanding players. But if I were going to make a list of, like, the top 100 players in baseball, are either of them in my top 10? Probably not. Are they in my top, I don't know, 30? Yeah, that's still really good. Yeah, I think the thing with Harper, too, and this was the thing when he was with the Nats, is if you look at him through the prism of war, it isn't overly impressive. And I know, like, we shouldn't be slaves to wins above replacement, but he's had a lot of low war years, like sub-two war years. How fair is it to hold that against him, in your opinion? Well, it depends on how much you want to care about his defense. I mean, in some of those years, especially his final year with the Nationals, I mean, you probably saw it up close more than I did. His defense was objectively bad. You know? And whether that was a small sample size fluke or he didn't want to hurt himself, I don't know the reasons. But the, the eye test for me matched up with the numbers, and I think that hurts his work. Like, he's he's never been a great defensive outfielder. You know, and he's gotten better, to his credit, in, in Philadelphia. Um, I think that hurts him a little bit. And I don't think you can, like, look past that and pretend it doesn't exist. But I, I do think if you look up it on the list, there's a lot of, like, three, four, or five win seasons, which are really good. And then you're just like, oh, wow, nine wins. What happened there? Why doesn't it do that again? And it's not quite that easy. <laughs> no, it's not. No, it's not. So you bring up defense. If there is a knock on Soto, it is that he isn't a great defensive player. When you do the comp of Soto versus Tatis versus Acuna, does one stand out above the other two in terms of being the best of that bunch? 
Well, Soto is clearly third of that group, and that's less a knock on him than I think it is a credit to the others. You know, Tatis' first year, it was really not great. You know, and I, when I would say that after his rookie year, like, hey, this guy was kind of lousy shortstop, people would lose their minds. Like, wait a minute, here's 15 highlight reel plays. I'm like, yeah, great. Um, what about the regular plays? Like, that's the thing. He, he's, his first year was objectively bad, just making plays you need to make as a shortstop. And to his credit, he improved that a lot. Like, a lot. He was really good last year. And a good defensive shortstop is almost always going to be better than a good defense of anything. So he's number one uh, on that list for now, assuming that small sample size was real. Acuna's pretty good. You know, he can play center, he can play right, he's got a good arm. I don't look at him as like a you know, Lorenzo Kane, Byron Buxton kind of guy, but pretty good. Soto is clearly the third, um, but I think he got a little unfairly dinged because, you know, he comes up in 18, and you know, it wasn't that great, but he kind of wrote it off because he was so young. And in 19, uh, he made a lot of steps to get better, and he was. Like, the defensive metrics all had him as, as average to slightly above, and there were clearly reasons why. Like, he talked a lot about his work with the coaches, and, like, I was specifically trying to do this, and it all came through, and that was great. And then the numbers hated him last year, and I think a lot of people are focusing on that. It's like, oh, he's already at DH, and it's like, well, wait a minute. Like, you know, it, it was a weird season, small sample size defensive metrics, um, and it did Started the season late, I think it was, I remember. Right? Yep. So I'm not going to worry about that. Yep. He's not a great outfielder, certainly not. But um, I don't look at him as a huge liability out there either. Yeah, it's interesting, too. They're moving him to right field for this year. So he's going to the more premium corner outfield spot. So we'll see how he ends up doing there. So contractually with these three guys, right? Tatis gets the mega contract extension, 14 years, $340 million. Acuna, more than a year ago now, signed that absurd eight-year, $100 million extension. And then there's Soto, and he has not signed an extension. It, it's been a big topic when it comes to the Nationals so far in spring training. He's not scheduled to be a free agent for a while, not till after the 2024 season. His agent is Scott Boris. You know, I know you can't tell the future, but what do you think happens with Soto contractually? Do you think he signs some sort of long-term deal, buying out arbitration and free agent years that tops the Tatis deal? Do you think Boris just plays it out to where Soto gets the free agency? What, what's kind of just your sense on that? Well, that's a difficult question at the best of times, and it's especially a difficult question because at the end of the season, everybody knows the collective bargaining agreement is up. And I have to imagine that there will be a lot of changes in how that goes forward and how that changes the baseball financial landscape. You know, So that in and of itself just makes projecting forward incredibly difficult. But the one thing we know for sure is no matter what the rules are, Juan Soto is going to get paid. <laughs> He's going to get paid a lot. And I know people like to look at, at Boris' clients and say, well, it's clearly going to free agency. That's not always true. You know, especially with the Nationals. Like, he's got a pretty good history of, of working with them and signing extensions. My feeling is that um, if it doesn't happen this year, then I don't think it'll happen in terms of an extension. Because you look at, at Tatis, he's only had, like, uh, you know, two half seasons in the big leagues, right? So part of the value for, for San Diego was, you know, you're getting, like, cost certainty for the remaining years of his team control, and then you're buying out a bunch of free agent years. And Soto's going into his fourth year here. You know, I, I don't think it adds up that way in service time, but it'll be his fourth season in the big leagues. And he's getting closer to free agency now than, than Tatis was when he signed that deal. And you can't use, as you said, Acuna's deal as a comparison because, wow, that deal, <laughs> wow. Uh, my, so I think they would love to sign him this year, but I also think without knowing how many fans you'll have in the stadium – and without knowing what the CBA will do, it's going to be tough to actually see it happen. So I think we might go into, you know, 
coming up on his free agency. Maybe it'll be like a Strasburg situation where he like technically reaches it, but then reaches it. It'll be kind of fun to watch. Is there any reason for the Nats not to want to sign Soto to a Tatis-like extension, you know, to, to say like, hey, you know, you do have him under these arbitration years for the next few years. It is, you know, 300, maybe 400 plus million dollars we're talking about, like guys can get hurt. Is, is there any party that would say to the Nats, eh, maybe not? Or is it like, no, if you can get a Tatis deal like done, you know, double digit years, 300 plus million dollars, you do it. Well, I've been referring to him as Ted Williams. And if you have Ted Williams at 23 years old, you should keep him. Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah. are Red Sox fans happy about not having Mookie Betts anymore? And I like the guys they got back, by the way. I thought that as a baseball trade was a decent trade. But no, they are not. They want Mookie Betts back. And I, I think national fans would feel the same way if Soto was off playing for the Yankees or Dodgers or somebody. Yeah. No, I, I think you're totally right about that. So Soto, Tati, Sakunya, there are certainly others. We hear all the time, and you brought this up earlier, you know, baseball doesn't properly market its young stars. Baseball doesn't properly capitalize on its great young players. How can MLB properly take advantage of having all of these young stars? Yeah, that's an interesting conversation because I think there's some truth to that. Like, nobody could sit here and pretend everything's been done perfectly because it's definitely not true. But I, I also think that's become almost somewhat of a meme <laughs> that, that people fall back on. Like, oh, why isn't Mike Trout more popular? Well, because his team is bad and he's never in the playoffs. Yeah. Like, how popular would LeBron James be if he never made it into the playoffs and never made any, any or won any championships? So I think part of it is, um, you know, you cannot market around never being on the biggest stage, and that's that's the Mike Trout issue. Uh, when I think about the the most recent like baseball players who've sort of transcended uh, baseball into superstardom, the two names that pop for me are Derek Jeter and Ken Griffey Jr. And when I think about the reasons why, okay, Jeter, great player, no doubt, uh, but he was the shortstop for the New York Yankees when they were winning titles, and he was in the news for dating supermodels, right? Ken Griffey Jr. is arguably the coolest man alive. You know, like if there's anybody who was close to being like Michael Jordan of baseball, it was Griffey, you know, the backwards hat. Uh, I think for him it was like the peak of, of the first wave of baseball card collecting. Like his rookie card was such a big deal. Right, it was just right. the coolest, and you had the, the tie-in with the shoe brands and everything. And so not to not to show, like, not to to like put the load off of the sport itself, I don't – it's not – can't all come from the sport you know like shoe deals and, and gatorade stuff and just you know being on the back page of the tabloids i do think is a big part of it that said baseball can and should do better you know make these guys more available make it easier to share highlights and there have been steps uh, you know taken in that regard so i do think it's better um, but i just i don't think it's a problem that mlb can just like flip a switch and say, okay, these guys are superstars now. You know, there's so much more that goes into it. Yeah, no, it, it's it's not easy. There's no question about that. I, I do want to get your takes on the Nationals and the Orioles in terms of, like, what to expect in the 2021 season. So with the Nats, obviously the National League East, you know, maybe it's the strongest division. You know, certainly it seems to be the deepest division. You've got the three-time defending champion Atlanta Braves. You've got the Mets having spent big and with their new ownership and getting – uh, Francisco Lindor and Carlos Carrasco, the Philadelphia Phillies still trying to make it back to the postseason, you know, that they can't be ignored. And even the Miami Marlins coming off a playoff year, albeit, you know, with that woeful run differential. Where do you see the Nats fitting into the National League East in 2021? I kind of see it as a three-tiered division, right? So at the top are the Mets and the Braves. Um, I, I, there's a lot to like about both of those teams. At the bottom, the Marlins. I know they made the playoffs, but, you know, like you said, I like their pitching. I don't see the offense at all. And then in the middle, you've kind of got somewhat similar teams in the Nationals and the Phillies where you look at the top end of their rosters, and there's some clear star power, right? Obviously, Soto, Turner, Scherzer, Strasburg, like, for sure. Um, but 
I worry a lot about the depth. Like I, I think they did a good job in adding some reinforcements into the lineup. Like I'm not the hugest fan of either Josh Bell or Kyle Schwarber, but they're competent, solid, slightly above average major league hitters, which is great. You know, you had two hitters last year. Uh, now you have four or five. I worry about the bottom of that lineup. And I really worry about the rotation depth, you know, cause like I like Scherzer and Strasburg and Corbin a great deal, you know, but Scherzer's not getting any younger. None of them are really. And Strasburg's already dealing with a calf injury. I'm pretty down on John Lester, to be honest. Like I know they didn't sign him with great expectations. I'm not, I'm not sure he can even be an average starter anymore. It, he hasn't shown that over the last couple of years. So I, if everything goes right, I think this team is in contention, but. It's not going to take a lot. Like, you look at the best teams in baseball, you know, the Dodgers, the Yankees, and they roll not just on stars, they roll on depth. Something happens, they've got someone ready to roll in. And I just, I don't see that with the Nationals. Like, if somebody in the rotation goes down, you know, I don't want 25 starts of Varek Fetty or, or, I don't know, is Austin Vos still around? I can't remember. He is, yeah. I think that was their, that was their problem last year, and I think that might be their problem again. Yeah, uh, you're not wrong in highlighting that. They don't have a lot of pitching depth. It's kind of been a sneaky problem for the Nats in recent years. They've had the success in all these winning seasons, but they've not properly developed pitching. They've had some bad luck. They've traded away some guys, but, uh, you know, both and Fetty, people like that, you know, they're kind of still trying to lean on those guys for depth and they haven't really provided it. Uh, with the Orioles, so, you know, they're in the midst of this total teardown rebuild. I, I think, this was needed for the franchise. You know, they were like bereft of analytics for the longest time. They've gone all in on analytics with Mike Elias and Sig Dell. But, you know, it's interesting because, and I mean, you know this. So the Cubs thing, the Astros thing, or the total tear down, you build it back up. Yes, it worked for those teams. But it doesn't work for every team. There's, you know, there's no guarantee when you do that that at the end of the line is going to be this 100-win season and a, and a championship. Generally speaking, in today's day and age, are, are you a fan of the total rebuild, build it back up? Or is there a better way to try to get back on track, get back to having a sustained winner? Well, it sort of depends on how you want to define total rebuild. Because when the new front office came into Baltimore, they didn't really tear it down. Like, it was already, you know, a smoldering fire. It was. They didn't, yeah, it was. They didn't come in and inherit this playoff team and say, okay, we're going to blow it all up. You know, they were brought in to fix the problems uh, of a team that... You know, I'd like to say to their credit, kept trying to compete when it was clear they couldn't, but that probably hurt them in some sense too. Like the Manny Machado trade return, they didn't really get much of anything. Terrible. Yeah, it was terrible. So I'm not going to put too much on the current front office. Like it's clear they haven't, you know, done a lot of moves in the last year or two to improve the current team, but there was a less than 0% chance they weren't going to contend. I I mean, I do see some appeal in trying to sign veterans to one-year deals, improve the competency level, maybe have someone to trade. That didn't happen here. It wouldn't have affected the outcome either way. I think what you need to look for with the Orioles is to try to find the clear moment when it's like, okay, we've hit the bottom, and now we're coming back up. And if you look at winning percentage they have, right, they were awful in 2018, somewhat better in 2019, somewhat better last year. They're not contenders yet. But I I always think with teams like this, you try to look at it and say, okay, when are they close enough that we're looking at guys who are coming up who could be part of the next good team, right? Like when you look at the Astros, uh, those first couple years, they were terrible. Well, they, they had Keuchel who improved and had Altuve who went from being okay to pretty good. You know, do the Orioles have that? I like John Means kind of a lot. You know, could he be that kind of Keiko type for the next good Orioles team? You know, maybe. Um, I think everybody wants to see Trey Mancini be healthy and have a successful year. And then you're like, okay, maybe Ryan Mountcastle is somebody. Uh, maybe Adley Rushman makes his debut this year. And just for kicks, who doesn't want to watch a rotation with Matt Harvey? And- <laughs> <laughs> you know? So the, I, what I think about, like, the different tiers of teams, they're not going to be good. 
but they're interesting. And there are a couple of teams I can think of who are not going to be good and also are not interesting, which is like the worst place to be. Yeah, I mean, they have a direction, which, you know, I know as an O's fan, they did not have for the longest while. So at least, like, there's a purpose, and you kind of feel like it is trying to go somewhere. It's just a question of, you know, when does it get there, and, you know, does it ever get there? But uh, at least there is a purpose. Anyway, Mike, uh, love talking baseball with you, man. Congrats on all your success, and wish you nothing but the best. Thanks, Al. Take care. All right, so we, toward the end of our conversation with Mike there, got into the Orioles, and I wanted to get into a couple of items that popped up for the O's on Tuesday. So first of all, Felix Hernandez is now injured. Uh, King Felix trying to get his career back on track here with the O's. The O's with Felix Hernandez, with Matt Harvey, with Wade LeBlanc, attempting to see if there's anything left in one or more of those guys in terms of trying to put together a rotation for 2021. And as I keep saying, you rehab the guy and then you flip the guy, right? The idea here with Felix and Harvey and LeBlanc isn't to, you know, have the guy around for the long haul and be a part of the next great Orioles team. It's about, hey, maybe you get something out of the guy for 2021 and then you can flip him. You fix him and you flip him and you get back a prospect or prospects. But anyway, uh, Felix Hernandez, who would not look good over his first two Grapefruit League starts, uh, got hurt or at least came up injured in Tuesday's outing. And kind of the ironic thing here is that he looked good. Uh, I mean, he didn't pitch long, but he tossed a perfect inning with a couple of strikeouts, but then left the game. What ended up being a 7-1 loss to the Tampa Bay Rays on Tuesday afternoon. And he left the game due to discomfort in his right elbow, which is kind of like in baseball when you say that about a pitcher. He left the game due to discomfort in his elbow. You, you need that that uh, that sound, right? Of Dun-dun-dun! In fact, let's see if my uber-expensive high-level sound machine can provide this for me here on this Wednesday. Let's try this, all right? Three, two, one. Felix Hernandez left his exhibition outing due to discomfort in his right elbow. Yeah, it's like the last thing you ever want to hear with a pitcher because that many times is a sign of a guy ultimately needing Tommy John surgery. Now, we are not at that point with Felix Hernandez, and hopefully we don't get to that point with Felix Hernandez. And, you know, it's not like the O's are uh, uh, trying to win a pennant in 2021. And Felix Hernandez was the guy on whom the Orioles postseason hopes rested, okay? Like, we all understand kind of what this was with him. But you don't want anyone to get hurt. You certainly don't want any pitcher uh, to have to undergo Tommy John. So hopefully that's not what this ends up being with King Felix. But it's worth noting, you know, in his first Grapefruit League outing, two runs and two innings on Saturday night, March 6th, he had fastball velocity, Felix did, that was mostly in just the mid-80s, you know, so uh, that, that that might be a sign of there are some structural issues here. I mean, I think a lot of people just wrote off the diminished velocity to a guy who was older, and he is, you know, he's going into his age 35 season, but maybe there is something structurally wrong with Felix Hernandez. So we'll see what ends up coming uh, with that. The other Orioles news from Tuesday is the Michael Franco signing became official. It's a one-year contract for a guy who now very clearly has the inside track on being the Orioles' everyday third baseman. He's going into his age 28 season, mostly disappointed with the Philadelphia Phillies from 2016 through 2019 off a strong performance over 80 games in 2015. But Franco in 2020 for the Kansas City Royals was actually pretty good. And the Orioles have some questions here with a guy who had been their everyday third baseman in Rio Ruiz. And so with Franco, again, veteran guy, hopefully he plays reasonably well for you and then you can trade him, okay? Michael Franco is not here to be a part of the Orioles, you know, five years from now. He's here to be a part of the Orioles for one season. Hopefully he does well, maybe overperforms uh, expectations, and then you're able to get something uh, back. 
for the guy. All right, that will do it for you and me on this Wednesday. Who knows what will be in store for us on Thursday when it comes to some sort of late night happening with our Washington football team. You know, it is on this Wednesday that the NFL's new league year is officially beginning. You know, I mean, a free agency truthfully started right on Monday with a legal tampering period, but uh, the new league year officially begins Wednesday afternoon for Eastern. So things that have been reported can become official. And uh, we'll see if anything else ends up developing with our Washington football team. You tell me what you think, what you want. You have questions. You have complaints. Let me have it. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Thank you for the continued support. Top 20 still. Apple Podcasts, U.S. football category. Have a great rest of your Wednesday. I'll talk to you on Thursday. I'm a little bit more process oriented. 